My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you could do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, October 24th, 2012. We're going to be embarking on a new series today for our, you know, light edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm kind of excited about it, too, actually. In preview, they're really good lectures. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And, well, we're we're doing the corrective work because, well, there is a such thing as truth, and there's a such thing as error. There's a such thing as sound doctrine. Well, there's a such thing as, well, false doctrine. And... Uh, these things matter, okay? These things absolutely matter. Now, what we're going to be doing starting today, we're going to embark on a series of lectures uh, delivered by Dr. Derek Thomas. Dr. Thomas is uh, he's originally from Wales, and uh, he is uh, basically distinguished uh, visiting professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And he uh, did an entire series called Getting the Gospel Right, Getting the gospel right. So, that being the case, I think we apparently get the gospel wrong. And I think that's kind of one of the things that we address here at Fighting for the Faith. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn, well, the program over to uh, Dr. Thomas. We'll take a break halfway through it uh, to pay some bills. Um, but the first lecture is entitled, What is the Gospel? This is important stuff, foundational, foundational stuff. And the reality is is that, well, we as Christians never really move beyond the basics. Uh, catechesis and, and sound instruction in the basics is vital. And I think uh, Dr. Thomas does a fantastic job with these lectures. And so we'll begin today with lecture number one, What is the Gospel? Here we go. Now turn with me, if you would, to second... Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we begin this evening a series of uh, studies together, uh, which I've entitled Getting uh, the Gospel uh, Right, and uh, this will take us through uh, to the middle of August and the Missions Conference, and I want us uh, over these uh, summer uh, Lord's Day evenings to uh, traverse some familiar ground, uh, hopefully very familiar ground, but to do so uh, in the interests of ensuring that we do indeed get the gospel 
right. There is no more important thing in all the world than getting the gospel right. Now, we have a text this evening, and uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. We'll begin uh, to read at the 11th verse. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Now, it is possible to get the gospel wrong. And it is possible to get the gospel wrong, even though we may have heard the gospel declared to us correctly. Paul, for example, in Galatians, in chapter 1, tells us that he's astonished by the church in Galatia. He's astonished because of the speed, how quickly they have deserted the gospel and turned to what he calls a different gospel, and then he adds, which is not a gospel. They had heard the gospel, and evidently they had indeed received that gospel, but they had quickly turned from that gospel and embraced something that was not, in fact, the gospel. Every year, I think, we ought, you and I, to do a little test. I'm somewhat tempted, and I may... I may yet do it to you during the course of this summer and give you a little pop quiz. And my pop quiz would go something like this. In five or six crisp sentences, tell me what is the gospel. Start musing on that. 
Because at some point during the course of the summer, I'm going to ask you on a piece of paper, and we'll have the deacons give you a piece of paper on the way in, and bring a pen, and in five or six crisp sentences, tell me, what is the gospel? Now, of course, you can spend a book telling us what is the gospel. Uh, You can speak about the gospel for several hours, but you can also tell me what is the gospel in five or six crisp sentences. What is essential to the gospel? Uh, There are peripheral issues and secondary issues, but what is peripheral? What is absolutely essential in our understanding of the gospel? Now, tonight our time is somewhat limited, and I want to confine uh, our thoughts to this particular passage in 2 Corinthians 5, and I want to narrow my focus to the verses that conclude chapter 5, and especially I want us to think about what Paul is in fact telling us in verse 21, because he is, I think, addressing to us, uh, addressing us on something that is at the very heart and at the very core of the gospel itself. Now, I want to say four things tonight before we come together as the Lord's people to the table that is in itself a picture of the gospel. And we'll think about that in the course of the next few uh, minutes this evening, how the Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel. I want, us, I want us to consider four things. The first is this, that the gospel addresses and answers our greatest problem. The gospel addresses and answers our greatest problem. You'll notice in verse 19... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And why was God reconciling the world to himself in the way that he was reconciling the world to himself? And he goes on to explain, not counting their trespasses against them. The issue here is trespass. It's one of the biblical words for sin. We can't understand the gospel. We can't get at the heart of the gospel unless we first of all address the issue of why we need the gospel and what is it that the gospel actually addresses. And it addresses the issue of sin. It addresses the issue of what uh, is the term used here, trespass, that we have trespassed. We have crossed over into territory that we ought not to have crossed over into. You'll see again in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there is in verse 21 a definition, if you like, of sin. Sin is a lack of righteousness. We lack the righteousness of God. So Paul is addressing here our fundamental problem, the problem of sin, the problem of trespass. And that tells us immediately that the gospel is not, first of all, about health. It's it's not about good health. It's not about our personal well-being. It's not about the relief of poverty. It's not about injustice in the world. It's not about wealth redistribution. It's not about injustice in the world. There is injustice in the world, but the gospel is not first of all about injustice. It's not first of all about unhappiness, although unhappiness is a consequence of sin and trespass. But you can have the gospel and believe in the gospel. And still find yourself in an unhappy place. So the relief of unhappiness is not in itself the gospel. The gospel is not finding the inner strength that lies 
within you. The gospel is not uh, the transformation of culture. Whatever that means, and I'm not sure what it means. But evangelicals talk about it a great deal, about redeeming the culture. And I think they mean different things according to who it is that's using that particular terminology. But whatever that means, that's not first and foremost the gospel. The gospel addresses our fundamental need, our fundamental problem. And it is, it's the problem of sin, that we're all sinners, that there is none righteous, no, not one for All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are not as God made us. We are not as God created us. We have broken and marred the image in which God made us. We've trespassed. We've gone into territory that we were forbidden to enter. We've done things we ought not to have done. We've, we've left undone things that we ought to have done. It's about sin, and one of, the, one of the consequences of sin and one of the consequences of trespass is, in the context of this particular passage, is alienation. And so Paul uses here the language of reconciliation. But what the gospel does is reconcile us to God, or God is reconciled to us. Now, the Bible talks about the gospel in various ways. Sometimes it uses the language of the law courts. And when it does so, it usually uses the term justification, that we are justified, that we are made to be in a right standing, in a legal, forensic sense with God. Sometimes uh, the Bible uses the language of the temple, and when it uses the language of the temple, it'll use words like propitiation, that one of the things that the gospel does is to propitiate the, the wrath of God, the anger of God, that is the reflex of God's holiness toward sin. So sometimes it, it uses the language of justification in a legal sense. Sometimes it uses the language of propitiation in a temple sense. Sometimes it uses the language of the marketplace. And that as sinners we, we are in debt and a, a, a price has to be paid to, to release us from our bondage and slavery. And, and then the Bible uses the language of redemption. But here, the language is the language of alienation and reconciliation. Here it's a, a, a social aspect of the gospel that is uh, to the fore. Our great problem is that we are alienated from, uh, from God. Uh, we are not in a right relationship with God. There is enmity. There is um, hostility. And what the gospel addresses is that, is that hostility. It addresses the broken relationship. Uh, we know it all too well, don't we? In uh, our relationships, in family relationships, in marital relationships, in, in parent-child uh, relationships, in, in ethnic uh, race relationships. There is brokenness, there's dysfunctionality at every level of society. Cities are divided, and and, and nations are divided over, over the lack of, of reconciliation, the, the lack of a, a good relationship. And Paul is saying here, one of the things that the gospel addresses is a broken relationship. There's a broken relationship between God and man. That, that relationship that is described so, so beautifully in uh, the Garden of Eden at the point of creation where, where God is, 
is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve have been created. And there's, there's harmony. There's harmony. But sin has, has broken that. And you see it so very clearly in uh, the story of Adam and Eve. How, how sin brings lack of trust and tension between Adam and Eve and and then between the two sons that are born and and issuing in murder and how and how that dysfunctionality and alienation spreads that's what sin does now the gospel is addressing not just not just the lack of relationships between individuals and between human beings but the lack of a relationship between God and man. And what the gospel does is, is reconcile. God is, is reconciled to the sinner. Now, we might think that the focus here is that we need to be reconciled to God. And that is true. But the emphasis of the New Testament is, is always the other way around. It's, it's God that needs to be reconciled to the sinner. Because, because of his holiness, and we'll, we'll consider that at another point during the course of the summer. God's, God's holiness, the integrity of God's being is such that he, he cannot, he cannot just, just bypass sin and trespass. There is, a, there is a response, there is a reflex of his holy character towards that. The, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the first thing that I want us to see here is that the, the gospel addresses and, and answers the greatest problem that man faces. And it's the problem of sin. God is the one who needs to be reconciled. And you see that in verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He he has done something in the gospel that, that restores this relationship. That there is a way back into fellowship and love and harmony with God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's what the gospel addresses. That we can know God. That we can come into a relationship with God in, in which we may call him Abba, Father. That's the first thing. The gospel addresses and answers our greatest problem, and that is sin. Secondly, the gospel is is fundamentally something that God does for us. I want us to see that. You notice at several points in this passage, Paul says, for example, in verse 18, all this is from God. The emphasis is on what God does. The gospel is not go and reform yourselves. The gospel is not go and be better. The gospel is not... Uh, have better resolve, better resolutions, uh, better goals. All this is from, is from God. And again in verse 19, it is the emphasis is on God. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself. This is something that God does. Or again in verse uh, 21, for our sake, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is something that God does. God does something. Now that's absolutely uh, fundamental. It's absolutely fundamental. While, While we were yet sinners, God does something. It's a a gospel that comes to us and says, um, we can't do anything. We can't do anything. The the gospel is not do. The gospel is spelt D-O-N-E. It's done. It's something that that God initiates. It's something that God brings about. It's, It's something that God accomplishes. It's, it's, 
entirely the initiative of an almighty and a sovereign God. That's why we sang Rock of Ages with that extraordinary verse that is so meaningful to us. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked look to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And, and the emphasis is entirely outside of ourselves. The, the, the gospel says it is, it is something that God has already accomplished. It is something that God has done for us. And it is something that God will do in and through us. The, the emphasis here is fundamentally upon what God does. And he does it in Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to pause right there and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Uh, click on the subscribe button. I am maxed out on my friends. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh Uh-huh, right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left 
and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's religious Trojan horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our situation room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical worldview weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical worldview weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 100 50 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. The gospel is outside of you. It's all about what Christ has done for you. If you think the gospel has to do with something you need to do, well, you don't understand the gospel. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460 All right, here is the balance of today's lecture on what is the gospel. Here is Dr. Uh, Derek Thomas once again. Here we go. There's a third thing I want us to see, and and that's this, that the gospel centers on the life and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It centers on the life and death of our Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The gospel is not simply the story of of redemption. That's not that's not the gospel. The gospel the gospel is it it needs to be interpreted. You know, if you if you see some of you have seen, some of you may have theological objections, and I respect that to having seen uh, Mel Gibson's movie about the the life of Jesus and but if you, if you watch that movie, if, if your conscience allows you to watch that movie, you won't get the gospel in it. It's, it's a portrayal of historical, more or less historically accurate events that happened in the life of Jesus. But there's no explanation of the cross. There's a depiction of the cross. There's a, there's a graphic depiction of the sufferings of Jesus. There's, there's one of the most graphic depictions of scourging that I think you will ever see in your entire life. And if you've ever seen it, you cannot obliterate it from your brain. It, it comes back and it haunts you. It, it is so violent. It is so fundamentally graphic. But there is no explanation of it. You can, you can respond in a thousand different ways. You can feel pity. You can feel sorrow. You can be angry, but there's, 
There's no explanation in watching the, the, the video, the movie, of what it is that Jesus is actually doing and why he is doing it. That, that's why the gospel has to be in words. Uh, with all due respect, you, you, you cannot preach the gospel without words. It has to be in words. And, and I know there's a famous saying that, that if, if, uh, if needs be, you can tell the gospel in words. But you have to use words to tell the gospel. The cross has to be explained because otherwise it is an act of brutality. It's just an act of foolishness. It's one more wannabe savior who gets killed. But it needs to be interpreted. Who is this person? And why was he doing? And what, what, what was the nature of his death? It's, it's, it's more than what can be seen with the eye. It's, it's more than what can be sensed with the external senses. It needs, to be, it needs to be interpreted. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul is telling us here in verse, uh, in verse 21... That, that first of all, this, this Jesus, this historical figure, this, this man who lived 2,000 years ago, that he knew no sin, he, he was sinless. Now, no one, no one here can enter into that. No one, no one here knows what that even feels like, to be sinless. I, 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 met, a, I met a woman one time and... Uh, she lived near the church, and uh, I went to visit her. She was in her 80s, I think, and uh, we, we, we started to talk about sin. And she said, my dear boy, I was younger then, my dear boy, she said, I don't sin, I, I never leave this house. <laughs> she, she had no idea what sin was. She had, she had no idea, none whatsoever, like the rich young uh, ruler who, who, when asked about the Ten Commandments, he says, he says, and I think in all honesty, as far as he understood it, he, he had kept all these from his youth up. But the gospel comes to us and says there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. Everybody in here, from the youngest to the oldest, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your social background is, it doesn't matter what your, what your net worth is, what kind of car you drive, what kind of job you do, what kind of education you've had. You, every one of you is a sinner. Every one of you. And me. All of us. Because there is, there is no one in the world who has not sinned apart from Jesus. That's, that's the claim of the scriptures about Jesus, he is God's son incarnate. And from the moment of his conception to the moment of his birth to his teenage years into adulthood, he never ever sinned. He knew no sin. He was tempted in every point like as we are, but he never sinned. He never transgressed. He never trespassed. He never he never went into areas where he shouldn't have gone. He never thought anything that he shouldn't have thought. He never left undone something that he should have done. He was sinless. He was impeccable. Now the churches claim that about Jesus' mother, but that's not true. His, his mother was a wonderful, extraordinary woman, but she was a sinner. Only Jesus, the only person the world has ever known who has never sinned is Jesus. And, and Paul says it in verse 21, he, he knew no sin, no, he had no original sin. And he had no actual sin. You know, from the moment that we are conceived, we are sinners. That's the teaching of the Bible. Because we are, we are linked with Adam. Adam is our natural father. All of us have sinned in Adam. And that's what Paul is saying here in this 
uh, in, this, uh, in this passage. But Jesus is without sin. He is, he is sinless. He's impeccable. Now he tells us in verse 19, what, what is he doing? This sinless one who is, who is taken and nailed to a cross, who's crucified, who's counted a cursed thing. Because in, in, in the, the teaching of the Old Testament, whoever is nailed to a cross is a cursed thing. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. He dies this accursed death. Why, why should Jesus, who never sinned, why should he die in this way? You know, that's, a, that's one of the scariest questions you can, you can ever ask. You know, why should Jesus die, let alone die on the cross? Why should he die? Because death is the wages of sin. And if he never sinned, why does he die? And there are only two answers. One is there's no justice in the world. That's a scary answer. There's no justice in the world. And the other answer is that he died in our room. And he died in our place. And he died as our substitute and sin bearer. Look at the language of verse 21. God made him, reckoned him to be sin for us. It's it's actually very simple um, language. It's not technical language. It's, It's not difficult to understand. God reckons him to be a sinner for us in our in our room, in our place, as a as a substitute. There's a great deal of uh, criticism about the idea of substitution. That's in, it's, it's, it's inherently um, unjust. But that's just nonsense, isn't it? You know the, f- the story of the four um, lieutenant uh, chaplains of the SS Dorchester on the 3rd of February, 19. 19- 43, the SS um, Dorchester was, uh, was in the North Atlantic and it was torpedoed by a German uh, U-boat. And as, and as the boat was sinking, uh, there were not enough um, uh, life vests for the, the, the people on board this ship, the soldiers on board this, uh, this uh, ship. And the four chaplains gave their life vests to others and uh, they went down. They held arms and, and prayed and went down in the ship. They uh, were given the Distinguished Service Medal. If you go to the Pentagon, there's a, there's a stained glass uh, window for uh, these four army uh, chaplains, lieutenant chaplains, who who gave their lives for others. It was an act of substitution. Jesus was made sin for us. God God reckons him in, in, in complete compliance with the will of Jesus. The Father reckons him a sinner in the room, in the place, as a substitute for us so that he receives what we should have received. We should have received the penalty for sin, but he receives it for us in our room, in our stead. The just for the unjust to bring us to God so that justice might be done and seen to be done. Do you see, you see this this extraordinary, wonderful truth about the gospel. It's about, it's about Jesus. It's about what he has done. And what he has done as a substitute. And what he has done to satisfy the righteous demands of the integrity and, and just character of God. 
You know, this passage says a fourth thing. It says the gospel, it addresses um, our fundamental problem, and that's, uh, and that's sin. The gospel is saying to us, it is first and foremost something that God does. It's not something that we do. It's not, it's not an act of reformation on our part. It's something that God has done. All this is from God. The gospel is about, it's about Jesus. It's about his, his sinlessness. It's about his death. It's about him being reckoned a sinner in the place of sinners. So that, so that we in him might be reckoned the righteousness of God. There's this, there's this double transaction. He is reckoned sin so that we might be reckoned righteousness. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. We get his life vest. He goes down with the ship so that we might be rescued. That's the idea of, of the gospel. It's, it's about Jesus, but it's about, it's about a, a fundamental change of status that we receive in Christ. If any man be in Christ, Paul says in this passage, and actually in the Greek it's new creation. It's not he is a new creation, but just just new creation. You know, when you become a believer, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, everything changes. Your, your, your will is, is released from its bondage. Your, your mind is enlightened in the truth. Your, your affections are drawn out from a predisposition to oneself, to, to loving and adoring and, and praising the Lord Jesus. We become something entirely new. I became a Christian in 1971, on December the 28th. And when I became a believer, I changed. God changed me. I was a new creation. I had new interests. I had new goals. I had new aspirations. I had a, I had a love for things I never loved before. I began to love the Bible. I began to love God's people. I began to love church. I, be, I began to love the things that Jesus loves. The old was, was gone. I was, a, I was a new creation. I was a new man in Jesus Christ. We are reckoned. This is the language Paul uses. We are reckoned the righteousness of God in him. Do you know what that means? It means that if you're a believer, if you trust in the Lord Jesus and in him alone for your salvation, you are, as far as God is concerned, as far as your status before God is concerned, you are reckoned to be a law keeper. You are, you are reckoned to be a covenant keeper. So that... So that whatever, whatever sins that you have committed or whatever sins you may commit, the sins of yesterday and the sins of tomorrow are all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ because we are reckoned in Christ to be the righteousness of God. And you say, that's too good to be true. Hardly a day goes by. I tell you, hardly a day goes by and I, I have to check myself. Is, is that really true? That sounds too good to be true. That in the gospel, I'm reckoned the righteousness of God. I'm, I'm reckoned in the gospel to be perfect. Now, I know that there are a thousand questions that, that come immediately after I've said that, but you've got to understand that first. You've got to understand that first, that when you come to Jesus Christ, he reckons you to be the righteousness of God. He reckons you to be a law keeper, no matter how great your sins have been. I don't care what you've done, how great your sins have been in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of God. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you will be reckoned the righteousness of God. You will be you will be a new creation. 
fit for heaven. Fit for heaven. Now, do you notice, and uh, we, have to, we have to bring this to a halt, but I want you to look at chapter 6 and verse 2, because he's continuing. You know, when Paul begins on the gospel, he just can't stop. And he says in verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And uh, I, want to, I want to address you tonight. Do you know this gospel? Do you, do you know what it is to put your faith and trust in Jesus only? Do you know what it is to be a new creation in Jesus Christ? Do you know what it is to, to have your sins completely and utterly wiped away? I mean completely and utterly wiped away so that you can stand in the presence of of your Father in heaven and say, Abba, I'm a child of the King. I'm the child of the King. With Jesus, my Savior, I'm the child of a King. Now, it sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Except that it's written in the Bible. It's written in the Word of God. And Paul is saying, Now is the day of salvation. Come, trust, believe. Come with empty hands and say, in the words of Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the gospel. And pray as we explore it over these next few weeks and months over these uh, summer evenings, we, we pray that we might fall in love with the gospel all over again. We pray for one another tonight and for those perhaps who are here who do not know you and who are strangers to you and who need to be reconciled. And we pray, Lord, in your sovereign power, reach down and draw them effectually and savingly in the gospel, to the Lord Jesus. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian, till tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.